Hey, Brian. Hey, Vic. You are listening to Game Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. Today, we are looking at 2012's Wimbledon and the wilderness that preceded it. Last week, Brian, you got us caught up on 2010, and I think we started on 2011. Um, So we'll kind of like, we'll complete the circle, if you will. But um, real quick, Novak's playing, Rafa's not. Thoughts? Talking about the U.S. Open, well, we I, I hesitate to say that Novak is playing. Novak is on the entry list that came out. That's the first step to getting into the tournament. He put his name down, so he isn't already saying he's out. Is he actually, uh, you know, we'll, we'll believe he's playing once he shows up in New York and is playing tennis in a couple of weeks. But yes, as of now, he's in. Rafa is not. We've said for a while that it's not going to be a surprise that Rafa doesn't play this U.S. Open based on you know, his, his priorities on clay, how outspoken he's been about the fact that he's maybe really not that comfortable traveling right now, and the way the ATP has rejiggered this ranking system because of the shutdown where it doesn't really, he's got nothing to gain from coming back to New York to defend his U.S. Open title from a year ago. So really not a shock that Nadal is not playing, not on the entry list. Djokovic on the entry list, so hopefully he comes, plays the U.S. Open. We've seen video from training on hard courts, so all indications are that he will be at the U.S. Open trying to win it again. Um, but, yeah, we know Nadal won't be there, and we know Federer won't be there, of course, with his injury layoff. Am I reading into this, or does there appear to be a dichotomy between players that are going and players that aren't? A message, if you will? Or is it is it much ado about nothing? It's certainly not much ado about nothing, but I, I think it's hard to just put it in like two distinct groups because everybody who's not going has a different reason for not going. Um, especially in this time, you really have to respect the choices that everybody makes, and we've seen that on all sides. You know, nobody's criticizing anybody for opting not to play, not to come to the U.S. I don't think it's a dichotomy for those guys. I think it's just individual choices. Whereas the people who are playing. A lot of them, it's financially motivated. It's professional motivations. It's just, hey, I want to get back, back, get back out there, get back to work. Certainly different, I'm sure, if you're in the U.S. And for some of these guys, too, it's an opportunity to get into the main draw of a major. That's usually something you might have to go through qualifying. Like Sumit Nagal was the last guy who made it through an automatic entry to the U.S. Open. He's not usually on the automatic entry list to a major, but now he's got first-round money, first-round points guaranteed at the U.S. Open. So what an opportunity it is for somebody like him and those those players a little bit lower down the ranks who usually have to sweat it out and grind it out through qualifying just to get into the main draw of a major. So a lot of opportunities for the guys who are playing. They've all got their individual reasons. I think it's it's broader than just breaking down into the we're playing, we're not playing camp. Each camp has its own kind of subdivisions. So the year 2011, uh, a tale of two years, Brian. Uh, Roger on the one hand and Novak on the other. Um, it's the first year since 2002 that Roger wouldn't win a Grand Slam final. Uh, how spoiled are we in many ways? Uh, Roger starts the year with a tournament win in Doha, but then 
Australian Open 2011, out in the semis to Novak. Three sets, but three hours. Novak goes on to win the final against Murray. We're going to break down a little bit of Novak's year. Do you want to do it here, or do you want me to save it for a bit later? Do you want to start that now, or do you want to wait? No, let's just do it right now, because when you when you say 2011 in tennis, your first thought jumps to Novak Djokovic, because it was the first great Djokovic year. I mean, one of the all-time great years, 70-6, and six, his record, and two of those losses were matches where he retired. He was beaten on the court four times, all of 2011, wins three majors in Australia at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. One of the better Federer wins of this decade, I might add, was at the French Open semifinals when Novak you know, had a real chance at a calendar year Grand Slam. Roger beats him in the semifinals, then loses to Nadal. But he won five Masters titles, three majors, 6-0 and that year against Nadal, over $12.5 million in prize money. And oh yeah, when he won the U.S. Open for his third major, he saved match points against Federer for the second year in a row in the semifinals. Difference was... He then goes on to beat Nadal in the final after losing in the final the year before. I mean, one of the greatest years we have ever seen, and that's the 2011 of Novak Djokovic. 10-1 and one against Roger and Rafa that year. Um, but Brian begs the question, was Roger's 2006 better? 92-5, and five, all four Grand Slam finals, winning three of them, and 12 calendar titles total? Um, no, I give Djokovic the nod because of the stat you just said. 10-1 against Nadal and Federer. And he's playing Nadal and Federer in finals and semifinals at these tournaments. And these guys were maybe not at, but pretty close to their peak. And we know what their peak is. I mean, the field he's going through to rack up these numbers is like an all-time field. So I think the only... You know, the 06 Federer season is tremendous. It's an all-timer as well. You talk about 84 McEnroe, 06 Federer. Uh, The 2010 season for Nadal was really good. I I don't quite put it at the same level. The only other thing that really gives 2011 Djokovic a run for his money is 2015 Djokovic. And who knows what 2020 Djokovic could have looked like. Remember, as we sit here in mid-August waiting and hoping the tennis season comes back in a couple of weeks, he still has not lost a match. Uh, Obviously, there hasn't been tennis played for about five months. But Djokovic had won every tournament he had played in so far. And people were talking, could he win every match this year? It was almost sounding like that was his goal. Um, So, no, I I put the 2011 Djokovic over 06 Federer. Was Novak's rise more meteoric than Rogers? Oh, that's a good way to think about it. Um, Remember that New York Times chart that I showed you a little while ago? The grid about the level of ascension? I couldn't find an equivalent one for Novak's, and I didn't have the graphical skills to plot one myself. But that's essentially the question: Did he? Did he? Was his projectile greater? Was the velocity of his rise faster, equivalent, or the same? I think it's tough to say. Like, just look at it. You know, they're both wide, pretty highly touted. Lot, lot of expectations around the two of them when they came up. You know, they're. They're below the Nadal level, like what the expectations were. You know, Nadal is like the ultimate, just arrives and takes over the game. Um, Federer and Djokovic both had success early. It took Federer a little while longer than Djokovic. Once he was there, he was there. Whereas Djokovic, you know, hit something of an early peak. Then we saw that bit of a plateau up until, let's say, 2011. Um, And then 2011 took it into another stratosphere. Um, 
sort of different kind of curves if you're going to follow it that way. More meteoric, it's it's tough to say. Like he got there earlier, but then it took him a little bit longer to find that next level, whereas Federer took him longer to get to the top level, but he stayed at that level longer. Um, so it's like Djokovic had like a, like a checkpoint along the way. It's probably the best way to think about it. Oh, I wanted to ask you this before we even started. So I'm just going to, I'm going to be doing a lot of editing on this one. So I might as well just ask it now. Brian, philosophical right out of the gate. Is a wilderness part of every legendary story? Yes. Whether it's literal or figurative, everybody has to spend some time in the wilderness, whether it's actually being lost in a forest. If you're Robert Frost, you know, trying to find miles to go before I sleep, or if you're just somebody who's stuck, you know, in the desert, if you're in the desert of a career, if you're in the desert of life uh, between two big sails, whatever it is, yes, you've got to spend some time in the wilderness. It's process, process leads to results. There's wilderness in every great story. Okay. After Australian Open, the losses mount. Jump in at any point if there's a point you want to make here but I'm just going to kind of go through the list to build the sort of visual of the thickness of the forest of this wilderness for Roger, if you will. This is Australia 2011 we're starting from. 2011, thank you. Gotcha. Uh, Dubai lost again to Djokovic. Again, this was Djokovic's year, um, and you're going to start to see some of this as we go through. Indian Wells lost to Djokovic again in the semis. Miami lost to Nadal in the semis. Nadal beat him in just over an hour, I noted. At this point, we're still early in the year, but is something happening to Roger that we're unaware of? Is, there, is this just the point where you've reached 16? Is he, is he dealing with any sort of motivational issues that you're aware of? Like, what, what can you attribute at this early stage of the year to what's going on with Roger, if anything? I don't think it's motivation or anything like that. I think it's that he's got these two usurpers in Nadal and Djokovic who are just playing the kind of tennis that we have now seen for the last decade. They're capable of playing. Like these two have come into their own at the same time. You know, Nadal has some injury issues that are coming down the road. He's already had some before, but this is a period of health for Nadal coming off a career 2010 for him where he won Wimbledon and the U.S. Open to go along with the French Open. Djokovic has come out gangbusters in 2011 with a win in Australia. Like these are just two guys who are really, really all time great, good. And Federer, who is still Federer, but he's not in that 06, 07 level, just being on the wrong end of these matchups. Brian, standing ovation for your low key Game of Thrones reference with usurpers, by the way. Quite I've never watched that. an episode of that show. Oh, wow. Well, even yeah. better. Monte Carlo out in the quarters, Madrid. Nadal gets him again in the semifinal. Roger got the first set, though. Rome out in the second round. And I think what you're going to see here is a pattern of Roger losing earlier in tournaments than we're used to seeing. Uh, then the French, 2011, makes it to the final, okay? And you, as one would expect, he's there he is again, which again goes to my you know, faulty theory that he's one of the greatest players on clay because he's always in the final. But I'm with you. You shut me down. I'm still going to say it, though, especially at least on this podcast. Makes it to the final, but loses to Nadal in four sets. First three sets were solid, by the way. It could have gone either way. The highlight of that tournament was that Roger beat Djokovic in the semis, which ended 
a 43-match win streak, which would have been a record that Novak would have challenged against Roger. Do you think that was on his mind at all? Yes, I think Djokovic was under a lot of pressure in that tournament. Um, and I, I think, you know, Djokovic had, you know, in the peak of this era, somebody was always going to have the easier path to the final where you wouldn't have to play both. You would only have to play one. Like, you know, people usually assume more often than not that fourth C would be Andy Murray. Um, if for whatever reason he didn't get there, you'd be playing somebody else in the semifinals. But to have to, just to look at that draw sheet from the time the draw came out, if you're Djokovic and know, I've got to go Federer, then Nadal to win this tournament, more likely than not. That's re- that's a lot of pressure already um, to then mount on top of the pressure of the winning streak, trying to lock up what would have been the career grand. Or he had not won the U.S. Open. No, he, 2011. Yeah, he had not won the U.S. Open yet. Um, so, so, yeah, that, that's even more pressure. I think, though, you know, we talk about how great this Djokovic season was, it was historically great. I mean, this is one of Federer's best wins because you've got Djokovic coming in here in out of this world form. You beat him. Uh, Okay. He doesn't win the tournament just to be able to just say like, yeah, it's like the old guys schooling the young guys like in pickup basketball when he's not going to like jump more than six inches off the ground. Now that Federer was washed up and old at that point, he was about to turn 30 years old. Um, but just to show that, like, I, I'm still very much a player here, very much relevant. And I think that was reflected in perhaps my favorite Federer victory celebration of all time after he beat Djokovic in that semifinal. Now, to semifinals, so you're not going to throw yourself to the ground. Just walks to the net with this, like, Dikembe Mutombo, like, finger wag. Like, just, like, I'm, st- I'm still number one. Like, he's not doing it at Djokovic. He's not taunting him. It's just, like, this message he's sending. Um, that was a huge win for Federer. Would have been better if he had won the tournament, of course. But to be one of four people to beat Djokovic that year, something Nadal did not have to say for himself, I mean, that's huge. And he played a, a tight uh, French Open final with Nadal. It was certainly better than the last time they had met in the final where he was beaten pretty handily uh, back in 2008. So he played a lot better, but it's Nadal at the French Open final. There's only so much you can do. Excellent context. He beat. Djokovic in a year when nobody else did um and that look if we're if we're drawing this up the goat chart there's a there's a notch on Roger's belt right there I like that exactly he of course beat you, you talked about the lineup in this tournament gets through Monfils Warinka Tipsarevich and Brian a guy named Maxime Teixeira whom I'd never heard of before and who because of his name alone surely a Game of Thrones type name by the way I was sure I'd find an epic anecdote to share for this podcast. I really dug, Brian, but sad to say, I came up short, not on the same level as Roger against Novak this year, but the sting was still substantial. Well, um, that is disappointing, but I will also say, we talked about this, I think, in our very first episode, you've got to tip your cap at these guys who come up against these all-time greats early in majors. Maxime Teixeira, his only main draw appearance at a major ever, 2011 French Open. So, okay, you want you want a more productive, more successful career than that. But, hey, your only major appearance, you play Federer at your home major. I mean, that, that's still a pretty cool story. 
to tell the grandkids. You hope it's it's that way and not the guy sitting at home wishing that he had done more. But hey, that's a great story you're going to be able to tell forever and ever. Absolutely. Especially, I believe he's a tennis pro or a coach of some kind. It's a heck of a story to tell the young kids that are coming up too, you know? So absolutely, it can happen to you. It can happen to anyone. Okay. Wimbledon, 2011. This was big, Brian. He is out. Roger is out in the quarterfinals to Sanga, who came back to win down two sets. What did this mean? This loss at Wimbledon in the quarterfinal, as ridiculous as that sounds, it's a good moment to remind ourselves we're in the company of kings here, not mere mortals. But what did this relatively early outing mean? Well, it meant it was strange because often when you would see Federer lose at majors, it would be just something was off. I mean, and he there wasn't much that was off in that match. Like Sanga just played maybe the match of his life, um, where if that was the Wimbledon final that day, Sanga was going to win Wimbledon that year because he was so good. Federer didn't play poorly. He just came again. Like usually when he goes up against somebody who's absolutely peaking, he'll find a way. He just couldn't find a way. Um, Bigger picture. Yes. Federer out Wimbledon quarterfinals in 2011. That's not a time where he should have been doing that. And that's also back-to-back years where he's falling well short of where he wants to be at Wimbledon after he had won in 2009, comes up short in 2010. So spoiler alert here, if you listen to this episode, it, it, it put a little bit of pressure on Roger heading into the 2012 version of the tournament. Not only because of what you just said, but also because of father time, you know? Exactly. Like on the north side of 30 and things just changing. Novak beat Nadal in the final of this Wimbledon. Uh, his first Wimbledon, I believe, right? Uh, Djokovic is yes. Yes. Um, lots of lopsided sets in that one. Lots of breaks of serve. You make anything of that? Um, it's just something you don't see. Right. Um, just the way, I mean, these are two guys who are all-time great returners. So that certainly has something to do with it, where if you're returning serve, you you almost have an advantage because they're so good at doing that. Uh, that's probably the best explanation for that stat. Out in the round of 16 of Canada against Joe Willie again. Out in the quarterfinals of Cincinnati to Burdick. Again, names that we've previously seen him dominate. Uh, 2011 U.S. Open is next on the calendar of uh, this wilderness year, if you will. Finally beats Sanga in the quarterfinals this year, 2011, but then goes five sets against Novak in the semis. In probably, tell me if you agree or disagree, one of his most brutal losses uh, for him and his groupies, uh, of which I include myself. Uh, Novak goes on to win, beating Nadal. Again, more lopsided sets. But this match against Roger, Brian, he breaks Djokovic to love to go up 5-3. Gets two match points. He's up 40-15. And this is the second time in consecutive years that he's had this same scoreline and situational tennis moment. Novak slaps a cross-court winner. His arms go up. There's a bit of a crowd bias there. He's, he's acknowledging it, if you will. Talking to the crowd. Walking to his towel, 
in the middle of a point, smiling, nodding, taking it all in. Unsportsmanlike? Uh, no, it's Djokovic realizing that he is, you know, he's in the arena and he's got lion, a lion across from him and 20,000 lions in the stands because these are not people that really want him to win with the exception of his player box. I mean, it's basically, it's gladiator. Like, are you not entertained? Like I just did that to save a match point. Like watch this. I can do this even more. It's incredible self-belief. What I will say was not sportsmanlike was what Federer had to say after the match in the post-match press conference where he called it a lucky shot. Um, Some incredible quotes from Roger after this one, where he was so angry that he lost this match. I mean, maybe the most, the closest you come to, you know, losing like the cool facade. Um, So here I'll read some of these questions. Do you find it amazing? You can come up with two blinding forehands in successive years on match point. The odds are pretty remote, aren't they? Of him doing that twice. Roger says, look, it happens sometimes. It's why we all watch sports, blah, 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 blah. Um, now the, yeah, so he says, okay, it's tough. Then he says the question, could you hit a much better serve for the return? He hit that winner. He said, yeah, much better. I didn't hit the best serve, but it's just the way he returns that it's just not a guy who believes much, you know, anymore in winning than to lose against someone like that. It's very disappointing because you feel like he was mentally out of it already. Just gets the lucky shot at the end and off you go. So Federer, not a very happy loser. Does not feel like he deserved to lose this match, as evidenced by the next question he got. What did he do better this time than when you played in the French Open? Uh, Federer says, are you serious? I mean, I thought it was a cl- like, that's also a, a patently ridiculous right, question. Like, right, nothing right. is separating these two guys. Um, are you serious? I mean, I thought it was a close match. I should have won here. French Open was very close, too. He could have won that, which all that is true. Yeah. I just chuckle at how peeved Federer is to have lost this match. No, the anger and disgust in that presser is visceral. We both watched it again on YouTube yesterday. And the fact that he used the word lucky and slapped, he slapped a shot and he, he goes on to talk about how it is something that you see in the juniors. You see young people doing this when they have nothing to lose. Uh, they just start slapping shots. He was likening Novak Djokovic to someone who was an amateur, which was audacious and bold, and it definitely showed his bitterness. Yeah, but I, I also understand what he's saying. Like, these are not high-percentage shots that Djokovic is playing. Um, so I can understand the frustration. Like, he's not calling him, oh, he's, he's a junior. Like, this is not, like, it's just, he can't believe that in a, in a major final against the guy who's number one in the world, that that's how he lost that match. Like, that's not how you're supposed to lose that match. He can't believe that. Was it a lucky shot? Um, yeah, but it was also a great shot. Like, wh- where's that line, you know? Um, it's one of the all-time great returns from maybe the greatest returner of serve ever. And when you look at what Djokovic has done over the 10 years that followed this match, I think it looks a little less lucky. Is he going to make that shot every time? No, but he's going to find a way more often than than you might think. Um so yeah, there was some luck involved, but you've also got to be pretty damn good to hit that shot in that moment against Roger Federer and Djokovic checks all those boxes. There was one great question I thought at the end where someone asks Roger what his assessment of this year has been. And Roger's kind of thoughtful about it. He actually says that's a great question. And he, in a true fashion of somebody who's won 16 Grand Slams, kind of says, 
you know, yeah, this is giving me a lot to think about. And, and I have had some successes. You know, I was in a final of a Grand Slam in what is ostensibly one of my worst years. So, again, we've talked about this so many times. Any other player would take his stat line for 2011, but we're talking about, uh, you know, not to overwork the, the Game of Thrones analogy here, but we're talking about kings, right? And uh, he doesn't expect to be in a situation where he's giving this type of a press conference. I will say, though, in watching this match back, Novak definitely won. Roger didn't lose. He had his chance. He was up two sets to, to love. That's something that I don't think enough people talk about. Novak came back and won three straight. Um, Roger had all the opportunities in the world. Forget about those two match points in the fifth set. He had plenty of opportunity. He had the crowd in his favor. This was a true testament of Novak's greatness. I want to hold off on whether it was one of his best matches or not, because there's another match that I'm going to ask you about, and I want you to contextualize the two when we get there. Okay. But Vic, it's interesting, like coming off the back of this tournament, like you would almost think of this as a bit of a low point for Roger to lose the way he lost. And if you're looking at, okay, is this going to motivate him to go out? I, I think you like the answer that he provided for the back half of 2011, where he gets hot down the stretch. He wins to close out his 2011 year. And again, this is in the midst of Djokovic putting together this career year. And Djokovic had some injury issues at the end of that year. But hey, Roger's able to clean up. He wins Basel, his home tournament, then the Paris Masters. So he's got the Masters title. Then he goes out and wins the ATP final. So a really strong finish to the year. And it you would think it, it positioned him well looking at 2012. I love that you brought that up because it's classic Roger, right? Shrugs off difficult loss and finishes out the year with three straight tournament victories. Uh, and it's also the first time that we see Kei Nishikori enter his story. Uh, I saw him in one of the tournaments they played. Uh, he'll be a factor that we'll talk about in the next remaining a few episodes. Um, general thoughts on Kei Nishikori. Is he a Grand Slam champion in the making? Um. I don't think it's so much in the making with Kay because I, I think what we're seeing with him is is like close to the finished product. Um, is okay. he? I mean, he's been he's been to a major final. Can he win a major? I would say yes. Uh, the issue with him often has been health. Like, can the body hold up over two weeks of best of five tennis? And he's been to one major final. Can he? Will he win a major? If I had to pick, I would say no. Can he? I would say yes. It's funny, right? I, I asked that question sort of, it's sort of rhetorical. You are much more of an expert than I am at tennis, but I am a above average fan of tennis. But we both have the same sort of intuition about certain players. Like you can kind of, what is it? Like there's just, there's just someone that you can, you just say that that's not a champion. I will say though, I never thought Chilich would be as much of a champion as he was. He kind of surprised me. But with someone like Kay, with someone like Sanga, um, uh, with someone like Monfils, right? They, there's a level of excellence, but then you can see a, there's a differential between excellence and then greatness. And, and what I mean by greatness is the difference between an excellent player and then a Grand Slam champion. Medvedev, I see someone having at least a half a dozen. Is that, am I talking out of turn or do you see that as well? I have a six majors. That's a lot. I mean, do I see Daniil Medvedev winning majors? Yes. Am I penciling him in for six? That's how warped we've all gotten by the last 20 years of Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, where it's just you, you rack up majors like you rack up t-shirts. 
Like it's just not something that's normal. Um, so no, I can't say I, I see. You know, and it's tough because two years ago, three years ago, I would have said that Sasha Zverev would have had at least one major by now, and he has not won a major yet. So nothing is, you know, a given. Um, do I see Daniil Medvedev? Like I said, I, I see Medvedev winning majors, but I, I can't say he's going to win six. Fair enough. Uh, got a little overzealous there. Um, I will say though that uh, I think it's safe to assume there's going to be a little bit more parity after this troika of greatness. Is that absolutely? Yeah, look at the WTA over the last ten years and the the parity that we've seen on the women's side of things. Yes, there. It's just and historically, I mean, before the Federer emergence, like if you look from let's say 2002 to you know, let's say the 92 to 02, the number of different men's major champions. I mean, it's like you, like I can name all the major champions on the men's side since 2006. Like you, it would take you four seconds because there's not many of them. Right. But 92 to 02, you have to like sit down and think about, oh yeah, that guy, like, and there's some who, oh yeah, Richard Krychek, he won Wimbledon the year, the streaker ran onto the court before the final. Like there's so many of those. Whereas on the men's side in the, 15 years since, far fewer. Hmm. Good point. 2012, better year, but uh, an Australian Open semifinal loss to Nadal, four-setter. Novak, ranked number one now. That's important because of what will happen at the end of the Wimbledon that we're going to talk about today. Uh, Goes on to beat Nadal in the final in the longest match in Grand Slam history. Five hours, 53 minutes. Uh, back-to-back champ there now. Brian, did this match officially put Novak in the same category as Roger and Rafa? Like, if there were a law firm, is Djokovic's name on the header after this match? It's a great way to think about it. Said like somebody who has uh, legal experience. Yes, because... So it's Federer, Nadal, Djokovic now. Yes, um, and I, I doubt Federer and Nadal are very happy about sharing space on, on the billboard because this is maybe the greatest major final of all time. And to beat one of the greatest players of all time in maybe one of the greatest matches of all time and to make this your, what's this? So 2011. So you've now won four of the last five majors. Yes, that is name on the letterhead worthy performance from Djokovic. I mean, this is the kind of thing that this is the you think about the different matches like which matches we'll be talking about 10 20 years from now you think of the 08 Wimbledon final um and you think of the 2012 Australian Open final uh you think of the 2019 Wimbledon final too but for the wrong reasons if you're a Federer fan um yeah this is one of the all-time great matches it put Djokovic into that rarefied air you want to see him keep winning and keep racking up the numbers because he was starting at a deficit he's staring at a deficit from this point for what Federer and Nadal had already built up but yeah this is the clearest symbol of intent that he is on his way Brian if uh if Novak's dad was weighing in on the letterhead he'd no doubt want the order of names to be an alphabetical order uh, that seems like the easiest way to avoid these headaches, right? Just make it alphabetical. Somebody with the last name Clark, I'm always, um, always works for me. As long as you don't go reverse. Yeah. Roger beats Nadal, who beat him at Australian. A few months later, he beats him at Indian Wells uh, in the semis. Let me so, jump in real quick because yeah. Roger played a lot after Australia that year. Um, yeah, and he talks about that actually. 
one thing though that I have to point out as an American, I'm obligated to do this. This is one of the great U.S. Davis Cup performances of the last 10 years. The U.S. goes into Switzerland on clay and schools a Federer and Wawrinka-led Swiss team where Isner beats Federer in the Friday singles. The Bryans beat uh, Roger and Stan in the doubles. U.S. whitewash. So that is one of the down points for Roger in this season. But then he shakes that off, goes and wins Rotterdam indoors. He beats uh, Del Potro in that final. Then he wins Dubai, beating Murray in the final after a Del Potro win in the semis. Then he goes to Indian Wells, as you said, takes down Nadal and gets a measure of revenge on Isner in the final there. But then in the French, he's out in the semis to Novak. Straight sets. There's a bit of a back and forth here happening now, right? They're, they're, uh, um, every time, it seems to me, just looking back at this and also watching it in real time when I did, every step forward that Roger would put against Novak, he would end up getting two steps back because Novak found a way to overcome it. I think you're oversimplifying or you're, yeah, oversimplifying this year because you look at what he did. I think this is a really impressive year for Roger. Like, okay, yeah, he loses to Djokovic in the French Open semifinals. But, okay, he wins Indian Wells, loses um, in Miami early to Roddick. Uh, This is Roddick's kind of last gasp. He retires in a few months. Wins Madrid on clay. Doesn't have to go through the hardest guys to beat on clay. The draw breaks for him in this situation. But he also has the distinction of being the only person to win a tournament on blue clay. 2012 was the year Madrid went for the blue clay not very popular among the players. I am a big fan because it's great to watch on TV. It just looked different. Uh, Federer wins Madrid. So that's a clay event. Gets to the Rome semifinals, beaten there by Djokovic, and then he loses to him at Roland Garros. So, yes, he loses to Djokovic back-to-back tournaments, but he is putting together a much more consistently successful 2012 than he had done in 2011. And this is not the part of the schedule where he's supposed to make his most hay. Like, yes, he's supposed to win Indian Wells, but he's not supposed to win Madrid. He's not supposed to go so deep into Rome. And yeah, you lose in the semis of the French Open. Okay, whatever. But it's a major semifinal. Now he's got the grass season looking at him. It's confidence. Like he had not had this level of confidence in a couple of years. What problem did the players have with blue clay? Just curious. Um, well, my personal thought is that it's change and they don't like change. Um, they said it was slippery. It was a little more slippery, a little harder to find the footing. Um, so th- they didn't like that. And that's why it, it went back. It's a lot easier to watch on TV to pick the ball up on the blue court. So that was why, you know, if you're watching at home, you'd probably be a big fan of the blue. It was an adjustment to look at, but what's wrong with a little innovation, you know? Uh, innovation is a good thing. I'm all about innovation. To a point. <laughs> To a point. So putting a bow on the French, Nadal would go back to beat Novak in the final. Sharapova uh, won that year too. Yes. Um, the fam- well, this is the famous Sharapova win. Uh, this is also the year Serena lost uh, that crazy first round match of the French Open, which is like one of the big, biggest shocks of all time. Uh, soon to be outdone by what we're about to see happen at Wimbledon to Nadal. But this was the famous Sharapova one because she had said, Early in her career, when she was, you know, this baseline power player, by this point, she's got the reworked shoulder, so she's more relying on her finesse and speed. Early in her career, when she said she compared herself playing on clay to a cow on ice, uh, yet she goes out and wins the first of two uh, Roland Garros titles, which was the big surprise there that she won it more than once. Not back to back. No, there's a couple of years. Yeah. Not that that's any less impressive. No, no, but, but just, just for context. Just goes to show how you never know how the career is going to turn out. So basically 2011, 2012, 
Brian, Rogers' loss was someone else's gain, right? So who was winning and taking titles in this first wilderness? Well, Novak won three out of four slams in 2011. In 2012, though, there was a little more parity. Um, is that a notch in Rogers' cap for a more sustained momentum during his peak? You get my question? I get your question. Yes, it's true. But we're also now at a point, and also keep in mind, 2012 is an Olympic year. So that's an extra event that these players are thinking about and concerning themselves with. But we're also at the point now where Djokovic and Nadal have gotten to, and Murray too, have gotten to a certain level in their careers where they're not playing every week either. So there are more tournaments just kind of opening up for that next rung of players for real opportunities for them to win because the field just gets a little bit lighter. Like, not that it's bad, but the biggest guns aren't playing every single week. I think you mentioned this, but I'm, I I might have lost the audio for a second. Uh, he loses at Halle to Tommy Haas yes. coming into Wimbledon, who was a wild card in this tournament. And that had me scratching my head, and I was hoping you could illuminate something for me. Can you explain the mechanics of a wild card, especially what it means for a big-name player like Tommy Haas? Well, the wild card's different depending on a variety of circumstances. So each tournament, you know, you've got the direct entry, guys who and women who get into the tournament by ranking. Each tournament will set aside a certain number of spots for qualifiers, people who play the qualifying rounds before the main draw starts and play their way into the tournament. Then you've got a couple of wild cards, and they are just that. They're free passes to get into the tournament. Now, each federate each tournament is going to control its own wild cards, and there is, I mean, there are standards. You can't just go give you or me, a wild card off the street to go get our butts handed to us in a main draw of a, of a professional tennis event. But there is a lot of discretion. So you'll see it, give it to a couple of promising young players. Oftentimes you see some of the conflicts of interest that permeate tennis uh, on full display, where if a, let's say a certain management company or a company owns a tournament, they're going to look after maybe one of their players who's a bit down on their luck and needs a, a spot in a tournament. They're going to hook them up. At the majors, they've got these reciprocal wild cards where each federation, you know, it's like the U.S. Open, the French Federation gets a wild card. The Australian Federation gets a wild card. And then that continues at the other majors that go on throughout the year. Um, so it is very different. A lot of times you'll see it for a big name like Tommy Haas, especially playing in Halle in Germany, where it's a, a player who, like we said, maybe down a little bit on their luck coming back from injury, whatever they need a, just an appearance. The tournament knows they're going to sell tickets. It's a win-win for everybody. I think the biggest win though, is that at hollow, which you could essentially call the Roger Federer open because the tournament that he owns that Tommy Haas beat him in the final. So safe to say it's not purely meritocratic. No, it's not. It's, it's a bunch of different, bunch of different political manifestations and yes and uh financial uh okay considerations like I last year so. like, i just just wasn't sure if it was uniform or not it's not um and you'll see players get upset because certain play like good examples last year at the u.s open you know usda is a certain amount of wild cards uh, a lot of people thought that tommy paul should get a wild card because he's been playing really well he's a guy who's shown some promise but you know i think his maturity was 
still developing a little bit. And the USTA didn't give him a wild card. A lot of his peers, his other Americans who he's friends with, they were pretty vocal with the fact that Tommy Paul did not get a wild card. He eventually played his way into the tournament, so it worked out well. But you get those situations. Um, it's That just shows how, how many variables are at play. That, Brian, brings us to Wimbledon 2012. Roger gets exercise. All the headlines that I saw coming into this exercises his demons, uh, overcomes the mountain. There's there's Lord of the Rings references here. Here we are. Roger wins another tournament. It's been uh, a couple of years, um, but only one episode for us. Gets through Ramos in the first round. Second round, a guy named Fabio Fonini. Fun player guy on named the tour. Fabio Fanini. Come on. Put some respect on his name. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna set it up a little bit and then I want you to go there. I did that on purpose. He's a fun player. He reached as high as nine in the world. Um, his best Grand Slam appearance was a quarterfinal at the French, but he's a staple, I would say, from around 2012, as recently as 2018. Am I right? Solid player, always in the hunt. Fabio's yeah. still out there. He's just had some injury issues the last couple of years. He's a guy who is a little, let's call him mercurial. He'll run a little hot on court at times. He said some things that have not been very appropriate um, that have gotten him into some trouble. He's got a master's title. He won that last year. So, I mean, he's in his early 30s playing his best tennis. That's why it's a shame. He had a calf issue. I think it was late last year, early this year. Also married uh, to former U.S. Open women's champion Flavia Panetta, uh, the best Italian player in a long time. So he's got a lot of support at home. Um, Yes, he is always entertaining to watch. She, I remember that final. That was it. Who did she play? Well, against? she played. It was the rather shocking final. It was the year it was 2015, the year Serena Williams was going for the calendar Grand Slam. And Serena gets upset in the semifinals by Roberta Vinci. That's um, it. So yeah. Panetta, I think the prime minister, I, I called the final that year, and the prime minister of Italy, I think, flew over for the, it was an all Italian final. He flew over, um, and it had a very Italian feel in the stadium that, two days earlier is thinking this is going to be the coronation of Serena winning the calendar grand slam. Instead, we've got Flavia Panetta, Roberta Vinci, and it was Flavia Panetta, Panetta winning uh, that title. Uh, Julian Benito. Roger lost the first two sets of this one, Brian match with plenty of nail biter moments, but Roger prevails Benito got his highest 25 in the world, and his best Grand Slam outing was a quarterfinal at the French in 2006. How did Benito get this far against Roger in the, in, at Wimbledon? What did he do? Um, ben, I mean, Benito has certainly ability and talent, but Federer just didn't play that great early on. Um, and then I think this is maybe one of those matches that you can look at and think this really helped Roger ultimately win the tournament. You want that certain level of sharpening, going into the business ends of these tournaments, but you don't want to be completely spent and tired out, especially at the ripe old age of soon to be 31 for Roger. Um, he just didn't play that great. Benito did play well. Then Benito, I think, kind of physically had his own issues down the stretch. He started cramping. He had his own problems. So Roger was able to take advantage of that. Um, the fourth set, though, is, is really what this match came down to. And that was Federer winning it in a tiebreak. I mean, that's his tournament right there. If he loses that tiebreak, but he wins it, and then I think Benito was just cooked by the time the fifth set and Federer rolled through it. 
And it was a nail-biter tiebreak, by the way. I went back and looked at a few of the points. Uh, Beneteau had his chances. And that's that's the difference in life, right? Match point, The we talked about the Woody Allen movie. That, co- that, that ring, you know, that ring just goes over the thing. It's a totally different story, totally different movie. Yeah. Um- but like you look at how Federer started this tournament, like looking at those those first two matches he played against Fanini and then uh, Albert Ramos before that, he had tied. Um, he was short. He was almost a Jimmy Connors record for the fewest games lost lost at Wimbledon through two matches. He lost nine games in two matches. So you know there's going to be a challenge coming. I don't think he wanted to be as nail biting as it was against Benito, but in some ways it does help. Next up is Xavier Meliz, then Mikhail Eugenie. We've spoken about them in the past. Then he gets to play Novak again in the semis. Um, Brian, he cruised through this match in a couple of hours. Again, relatively speaking, he's playing the guy who's been besting him more or less every time they've been toe-to-toe. Um, up to this point, he'd lost six of seven against him. What happened here? Well, a couple things. I don't. I think Djokovic in this match, Djokovic in this match, just looked and seemed a little lethargic, a little sluggish. He didn't. He said he wasn't like feeling great, but didn't go into specifics. But the bigger issue is that beautiful thing that is sitting right over your head in our backdrop here on Zoom, and that is playing a role for the first time in this podcast. The roof on center court at Wimbledon. It was raining. They closed the roof. And when that roof closes, that's great news for Federer. We're going to talk about this a lot more in the final against Andy Murray because with the closed roof, it becomes essentially an indoor match. Shorter points, quick, decisive tennis. Whose style does that sound like it suits? Roger. Why? Is it because there's no movement of air? Yeah, it's just inside. Like it, it just the ball just cuts through the air quicker. Everything's quicker, sharper, faster, and you're not worried about the wind interfering with your ball toss. There's not some gust that's going to mess with your timing. It's a more controlled environment, um, and I, it gives him an advantage. Is he go, Would he have lost the match if the roof was opened? Uh, probably not because Djokovic just didn't look that great in this tournament. But um, This was an added boost. It didn't, yeah, it, it did not hurt Roger. Djokovic after the match too was was quick to say, and maybe this is like some psychological stuff that he didn't think the roof closed gave either player an advantage. And he's right in a way. I mean, these are maybe at this point the two best tennis players in the world. Like it's not like it's going to make a huge difference. But Djokovic, to his I guess credit, said he didn't think it gave one player a decided advantage. Hey, uh, this is sort of this is a hundred thousand percent tongue in cheek, but my son asked this question, and I actually thought it wasn't entirely unreasonable. He sees that there's all these different surfaces, right? There's grass, there's clay, there's hardcore, there's carpet. He asked very innocently, "How come there's not an ice open? Like, would?" The-? And I looked at him and I said, "I I don't know. I mean, like, could could there ever be a match played on snow?" As ridiculous as that sounds, would it be a television event? Um, no, because, well, the footing. You're, the ball wouldn't bounce. The ball wouldn't so bounce is one problem. Yeah. And uh, your foot, I mean, you, you kill yourself trying to get to the ball. Like, he, <laughs> like you, you should have your son watch, watch an NHL game. I think that's the closest you're going to get. Uh, that's a good so, thought. Some good actually. ice but it was a, entertainment. I thought it was a wonderful question for like a six-year-old to yeah, ask. Yeah, it's a great like, six-year-old question, but it's just not. Where's the ice bowl, yeah, you know? The footing would would doom us all. Although if I had to pick a winner in that scenario, I'd have to go with, with Federer. I think he'd be able to deal with the, the movement issues and sort of like 
He would he would have an advantage, is all I'm saying. He'd be a lot more elegant and graceful on ice than some of the players would. I think the winner would be the player who managed to avoid severely damaging their body over the first however many rounds in your ice open. So it's a hard to hard one to call. Andy Murray and the final. Um before we get to Murray, let's talk. We talked about Djokovic. We're about to talk about Murray. Rob's talking about Roger. Big, uh, big name missing here, and that is Rafael Nadal, because Nadal at the beginning of this tournament lost one of the biggest shocks we've seen in recent major tennis history. And that was when Rafael Nadal was beaten in the second round by Lucas Russell. Lucas Russell, whose career high ranking was 26th in the world back in 2014, won two career titles, just is not a player that should be beating Nadal at a major also was then responsible for maybe one of the greatest quotes of all time. Lucas Rossall is Czech. So at the um, U.S. Open in September, August, September 2012, uh, Thomas Burdick, uh, the Czech number one for the better part of the decade, was asked a question where he was essentially compared to Rossall. And Burdick said, are you comparing me to Lucas Rossall? Like uh, insulted, essentially, that he was compared to his countrymen. So bizarre loss for Nadal, who was clearly not healthy. After this Wimbledon, we don't see Nadal again until I believe February of 2013. Like he is off the tour for the better part of a year uh, trying to recover. And he turns in a, a pretty solid 2013 after that. So, so things worked out well for Rafa, but this is another example of how blessed Federer's been in terms of his health and his fitness that he has been able to play for really long stretches, pretty much uninterrupted. Of course, now it's different as he approaches 40 um, and he's going to miss the rest of whatever the back half of this year looks like. But this early loss and the way things went for Nadal were just kind of a, a sign of how hard this sport is. Not to put you on the spot, but Roger had 2006. Um, Novak had 2011. What is considered to be Rafa's equivalent best year? Is there one? Um, I was saying before, 2010 was really okay. good. That's when he won. Uh, yeah, I would say 2010 because he, he won three out of four. That three year? of four. He completed the career Grand Slam, won the U.S. Open for the first time. Um, but he is doing it longer than Federer has like 2017 he was the year end number one 2019 he was the year end number one he won two majors each of those years he had a really good 2013 when he came back from that long layoff he won two majors so it's like these odd number years he's had the gaps the fallow periods but I would say 2010 just to if I'm throwing a picking one immediately I'm gonna say 2010 is the best Nadal year but he's had a lot of really good years Okay, the final, um, the main takeaway here is that it was a dominant performance by Roger, even though Murray wins the first set. Um, the drop shots are the thing that I noted in looking back at this. Roger had a lot of them. He had backhand ones. He had forehand ones. Is that a sign of unbridled confidence in a Grand Slam final? Or is it tactical or a bit of both? It's tactical. Um, he realized, and his team, he's working with Paul Anacone at this point, realized that uh, Murray's maybe susceptible to to drop shots. And Murray's a great mover, but they obviously saw something tactically that led them to believe the drop shots would work. Murray's one of the smarter players on tour. Um, so you know you, you can't, you've got to think your way through the match against him. 
Um, so yeah, Roger, you've got to be able to hit the drop shot. So of course you've got to have confidence to do that, but it's, it's a tactical choice in this match. Any observations from your part on this match and context in general for the aftermath? Yes. A couple. Um, the way it started with Murray winning the first set. I mean, I, I think we have to put the context. We've talked about these two meeting in finals a couple of times. And when we've talked about that, the 08 US Open, Australia 2010, we've talked about the hype that surrounded Andy Murray as the, the best British singles, male singles player in, in decades, in multiple generations. That ratchets up to a whole new level here when he's playing at Wimbledon at home. It's the Super Bowl of the sport, and he is in the final. First guy since Bunny Austin. That was Bunny Austin in 1938. Uh, you know, Fred Perry was the most recent to win it. Bunny Austin, most recent in the final. I mean, that might as well be a different sport with what tennis and the world looked like in 1938 before the Second World War started. That's the last time you had a British man in the final. So Murray is in this final with all this pressure on him. He's playing really well. Every match he's playing sends the country on this emotional roller coaster to excuse a bad cliche. I always remember there is a great match earlier in the tournament when Murray plays uh, Marcus Bagdadis. Wimbledon is in a village, Wimbledon village in Southwest London. And they've always had this agreement with the people around the village that they would never, okay, it stays light late, at that part in that part of the world that time of year. So you could play until well after nine o'clock, but they always said, we'll never play after 11. Don't worry. Even when we build the roof, I remember the Baghdadis match because some matches got backed up. It went long. They finished that match where Murray's afraid he's going to have to come back the next day because of the 11 o'clock curfew. So he wins the first three games of the deciding set in like 12 minutes. And there's just this drama of, okay, is he going to win? Is he going to win on time? And just, you get that communal experience where you've got all these people under this closed roof rooting for this guy, not only to win the match, but to do it in a certain amount of time. It just gives you that feeling that it's like, unlike anything you've seen before. So he carries that momentum into the final and wins the first set. So the place is going bananas, but these are smart tennis fans who are smart enough to know that, okay, you win a set against Roger Federer in the Wimbledon final does not mean you've won the Wimbledon final. Federer wins the second, and then early in the third set, it starts to rain. So they close the roof. Murray did not want the roof to be closed, but he knew that it was going to be closed. There's nothing he could do about it. Why? Because he knows how much of an advantage that is for Federer. Like, just how much, how good Roger would be in those conditions. He doesn't want to give Roger any advantage, and that's a pretty significant advantage. So the roof closes, and Federer doesn't lose a set for the rest of the match. He wins the final in four sets. Him not wanting it to close would have meant that there'd be like a rain delay. Yeah. Like in the past, like he's thinking, okay, it's just going to like spit for, because once they close the roof, they're not going to open it again. Gotcha. God, that's the key. Yeah. So it's like, I think his thinking was, if it just like spits for like five minutes, let's just sit here and then we'll wait. Um, I I think he's, he knew if he was right, if he was anybody, but the guy playing Roger Federer, he'd be like, oh yeah, close the roof. Like, why, why wouldn't you? Um, but we're talking about a game of inches here, especially in terms of the edge. Right. Uh, giving an inch is a, is, a, is a difference between a match and a, and a loss. You know. Now, as far as context goes, uh, you could see how, I mean, Murray is like bawling after this match on court. Like, I'll ne- like, he gets 
this is one of those few times at Wimbledon where Federer is not really the favorite. Like everybody wants Murray to win this match. So I always remember, I think it was with, with Sue Barker with the BBC, gets him for the, the runner-up interview. And, you know, the crowd is going absolutely bananas. He gets up to the microphone. He can't even, like, get himself together. He's, he's visibly crying. And they finally quiet down. And he just says, I'm getting closer. And they all go nuts again. He starts crying again. And it's just this emotional, like, you can't even fathom the emotions that are going on for, for Murray at this point, because you're now, you're so, so close, but he just has not been able to do it yet. Um, but spoiler alert, he does it. So that's my next point. I think in the grand scheme of things, the Murray benefited more from this match than Federer did. If the, if I told Andy Murray that he'd probably you know laugh at me, say, Oh yeah, I love losing the Wimbledon final. But Murray comes back in three weeks, wins the gold medal over Federer on that very court. Remember, the Olympics were in London in 2012, so they quickly turned around the All England Club. That was the tennis venue. Murray wins there. That gives him a nice lift. Then a few weeks later, goes to the U.S. Open, wins the title, his first major title. He's finally broken through. He beats Djokovic in the final. He's got the major title. You know, we're we're all the time. Okay, it hasn't worked out numbers wise in terms of a big four, but this is still very much the peak of the big four. And now Andy Murray is right with all of the others in that he's got a major title. For sure. No. And in the big four thing is, you know, you're parsing at this point because he was the, he was the fourth guy that was always in the second week that was playing one of those guys to get to a semi or to a final. So um, it, it's fun. It's funny. You, you mentioned the, the 2012, um, Olympics. I had forgotten that it was in the that Wimbledon was the venue and that he beat Roger there. Uh, there's a nice symmetry there. I did. I completely. I completely yeah. overlooked that. That was also those Olympics were where Serena uh, Crip walked after winning the gold on center court. One of the great moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the uh, the Wimbledon that he did win, who did he beat? He won two. He won. Oh, he's won two. Yeah. Okay. So he wins Wimbledon the following year. I also uh, bury that lead. Obviously, 2013. He beats Djokovic in the Wimbledon final, and then he wins again in 2016, which is the year he finished the year as the number one of the world, and he beat Raonic, in, Milos Raonic, in that final. Never beat Roger in a final, though. In a major final, no. In a major final. Yeah. I mean, but you think about it, you beat Djokovic twice. That's the thing, that's the, that's the enigma of Djokovic, right? Like, other players could beat him, and I'm talking as a Roger fan here, but every time... Every time he played Roger, I, I, I tensed up. I, I didn't think that Roger had it. And I think it goes back to that word that you mentioned a while ago. And it's a word that we've been talking about since the beginning. There was this moment where Roger's confidence shifted. And uh, I think confidence has a huge thing to do with it, especially in those matches with, uh, between him and, him and Djokovic. I agree that he's always gotten under his skin, but I disagree in that he didn't. Roger doesn't have confidence in those matches. Like, yeah, I mean... Okay, maybe in the big picture, he knows that Djokovic has has been had his better, had his number the last few times they have played. But you know, somebody like Roger Federer or any real top professional is not going to all of a sudden it's a pressure moment and they're gonna, you know, tighten up Buckle. and get nervous. Like I think that breaking it down to like those individual points, I, I just don't think he does that. Um, something else though that's you know we talk about confidence and how much how big this was for. Andy Murray to just to get to this Wimbledon final. Of course, it's huge for Roger to win 17. But the other thing for 
uh, Roger and for Djokovic and talk about how to frame things going forward. This is the last time Federer beats Djokovic at a major, Wimbledon 2012. And in doing so, he regains number one. Yes. Wins his seventh Wimbledon, which ties him with Pete Sampras. And it's a nice capstone to this wilderness, right? It's a testament to you can make it through. You know, he ends up, he still manages, I guess is my point, Brian. He still manages to break records even after this first wave of wilderness. What's on tap? Uh, well, do we have any stray items? Um, you know, Roger, let's just uh, finish up the year. Roger, um, he wins Cincinnati, beats Djokovic in that final. Loses to Burdick at the U.S. Open in the quarters, and that was maybe a little bit surprising. That's, of course, we just said Murray goes on to win that. Uh, loses in the Basel final, always uh, headline-worthy when he loses a, a major final, or uh, his home tournament final. That was to Del Potro. Then he loses the ATP finals to Djokovic. So almost the, like, okay, he's getting to finals, he's going deep into tournaments, but unlike the year prior when he um, – finished 2011 strong, a majorless year. He doesn't finish 2012 as strong as he finished 2011. And so uh, now we've got to wait for uh, his next major title. What's on tap? So we are, this is by far our longest gap in the series. We are, think about this time frame. We're going January of 2017 when he gets back to the top of the game. A lot of wilderness, a couple major finals in there, but unable to break through. Djokovic had a lot to do with that. So did a few others. But 2017 is when we get the final burst of glory uh, from Federer with uh, three majors to go, 18, 19, and 20. A lot of life in between that, too. Wow. I had kids. Both my kids were born during that second wilderness of Rogers. It's fascinating. I want to leave you with one thought. Um, You mentioned that this was the last. He won Wimbledon, and then he sort of trailed off at the end of 2012. And then we have this long, prolonged uh, second wilderness, if you will, where I, I believe we're going to be introducing the saber. Uh, in the, we're going to be talking about that at least next episode. But my question is, at this point, knowing his age, knowing where he's at legacy-wise, is, he, is, this, is this 2012 Wimbledon when he's starting to think, I'm going to concern myself primarily with Wimbledons going forward? Has that entered into his mind at all? Is that just me projecting again? Um- no, it's a valid point, but I don't think we're there yet. Like that point certainly comes, um, but I think we're still a few years away from tailoring the schedule that specifically. Awesome. All right. Well, I will see you next time at the same time in the same place. This was a lot of fun as always. Thank you and stay well, buddy. Thanks, Vic. You too. 